There was an organism that was identified in 1881 that some people call Streptococcus pneumoniae, and some people call it Streptococcus pneumoniae, and others call Streptococcus pneumoniae. A lot of people shorten it to Strep pneumo, and a lot of people call it pneumococcus. And no matter what you prefer to call it, you will come to respect the pneumococcus. Out of the more than a hundred microbes that can cause pneumonia that we know about, it is the most common cause, and it accounts for about two-thirds of bacteremia when bacteremia occurs from pneumonia. And when the pneumococcus enters the bloodstream, causing bacteremia, a seeding of different sites can occur, such as you can get septic arthritis or endocarditis. So this metastatic infection can be very serious. Usually when we inhale the pneumococcus, it's aerosolized and it just sets up a colonization in our nasopharynx. That colonization usually occurs for about a month or two, and smokers are more likely to be colonized than non-smokers. And if you've recently had antibiotics, there's more of a chance that that colonization will consist of an antibiotic-resistant Streptococcus pneumoniae. So why would some carriers of the pneumococcus get pneumonia and others not get it? And I think part of the answer comes from the European Respiratory Journal on April 1st, 2005, where there was a study where they looked at the relationship between the inoculum dose of pneumococcus and pneumonia onset in rabbits. There is a biologic balance that happens between bacteria and its hosts. I already discussed in the first pneumonia podcast how our immune system is such an important factor, but another huge factor is actually the inoculum, the actual amount of bacteria that's getting into the lower respiratory tract that can overwhelm the host's defenses. That's not at all to say that just inoculum and just being immunocompromised are risk factors. We know of many risk factors. Those of you who've listened to my influenza podcast know that that will be a reason why you may pick up a bacterial infection after the virus has injured the respiratory tract, thus allowing the bacteria to become invasive. We know that alcohol abuse is a risk factor for pneumonia as is smoking. Having an underlying lung disease like COPD can be a risk factor. And then I think most of us realize very well that splenectomy indeed is a big risk factor for getting invasive pneumococcal disease. And that is why it is so important to receive a pneumococcal vaccine if you have a planned splenectomy. Of course, many times splenectomies are not planned, such as in trauma. And then there's social factors that make you at higher risk for pneumonia, like being in jail or homeless. Well, what happens then when you have these nasopharyngeal carrier states of pneumococcus? You can then aerosolize the pneumococcus into your lungs, and then the pneumococcus can invade alveolar cells, particularly they invade type 2 alveolar cells. Type 2 alveolar cells are those cells that secrete pulmonary surfactant. 
And that's when the battle begins. And so if you do a bronchial alveolar lavage of someone who's got pneumococcal pneumonia, and then if you tested that lavage fluid for all kinds of stuff, you would notice that there's white cells and tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6, and all these things are trying to now fight off this infection. And part of that reaction of that battle is then to make sputum. And classically, when we think of the pneumococcus, the sputum is usually rusty. And why is that? Because you also have some blood cells mixed in, so some actual hemoglobin that's mixed in with all this other stuff that you're coughing up. And when you auscultate with your stethoscope, you will very often hear rails because of that fluid that is there. Now, sometimes the consolidation from pneumonia can be very significant and you can have dullness to percussion on the physical exam. But what's very interesting about this is despite this war going on in the lung, if you survive pneumococcal pneumonia, and I realize some people don't, but a lot do, and those who survive usually have normal pulmonary function, so we should be very grateful to our bodies for taking on this war without destroying the lung tissue. I mean, sometimes there is a necrotizing pneumonia where you actually destroy some lung tissue. Sometimes we refer to that as cavitating pneumonia, but that seems to be more of the exception than the rule. But again, as I said about bacteremia, if the pneumococcus gets into the bloodstream and sets up somewhere else in the body, destruction can happen that way. You know, it was Napoleon who said, in politics, stupidity is not a handicap. And I can tell you that stupidity would be a handicap in trying to fight our very complicated immune system, but the pneumococcus is not stupid. In fact, it changes its surface depending on where it is in the body. For example, there's this thing called phosphorylcholine, and the phosphorylcholine on the surface of a pneumococcus is very useful for attaching to the lung alveolar cells. But phosphorylcholine is a bad thing for the pneumococcus when it's in the bloodstream because C-reactive protein can then bind to it. And when C-reactive protein binds to it, it acts as an opsonin. And so basically it's telling macrophages and leukocytes, hey, come phagocytose this bad bacteria. And so what does the pneumococcus do when it's in your bloodstream? It actually downregulates the surface phosphorylcholine. So it basically is altering its surface depending on where it is in your body based on its own needs. And by the way... Pneumococcus is not totally unique to this, meaning that a lot of other bacteria, including mycoplasma and pseudomonas, can do this as well. Another thing that is not unique to the pneumococcus is that when its cell wall disintegrates upon death, it can cause a significant inflammatory reaction. Usually when we start thinking about reaction to endotoxins that are released into the body causing a really bad, harmful experience, we think about the Jerish-Herzheimer reaction. And that was classically associated with penicillin treatment of syphilis, but we don't see a lot of syphilis these days. 
But we see a lot of pneumonia, and we see a lot of pneumonia that's caused by pneumococcus. And what happens is sometimes we give antibiotics and we notice that our patients start getting sicker. And that is when the Monday morning quarterbacks shine, meaning you admit somebody onto the floor, they look like they're pretty good, and you give them the antibiotic, they get worse, they end up in the intensive care unit with septic shock. Not every patient that gets worse under your care and ends up in the intensive care unit is because you picked the wrong antibiotic. In fact, you probably picked the right one, and that's why it made them sicker. As you blew apart that cell wall that released all these inflammatory components, and likewise, it's not that you don't have good intuition about who should be on a medical floor versus the intensive care unit. Conditions change and people can get worse despite you doing all the right things. And by the way, it's this inflammatory release that is part of what drives that ongoing corticosteroid debate and sepsis, meaning the theory is that down-modulating the immune system might decrease inflammation and death, but the data is very controversial as to whether steroids clinically help or hurt when it comes to septic shock. But interestingly, speaking of inflammation and the pneumococcus, we know the pneumococcus by no means exclusively causes pneumonia, and one of the diseases that it causes is meningitis. And what is an accepted standard of care in pneumococcal meningitis? giving corticosteroids. Anyway, one of the focuses of research for several people is the development of anti-inflammatory agents that are more specific than corticosteroids. Anyway, going back to the topic of patients getting sicker despite you doing the right thing, there is another thing that you can get easily burned on. In fact, it will happen. It has happened to me. It will happen to me some more is this issue of pleural effusions. They are rather common when it comes to pneumococcal pneumonia. Certainly, when you look at the x-rays of your patients with pneumonia, you frequently see an effusion. Usually, we don't get that excited about paraneumonic effusions because they are usually sterile. But sometimes, as we know, those are empyemas and not just sterile paraneumonic effusions. And so we don't necessarily want to start invasively tapping everybody with a paraneumonic effusion. I certainly don't want a needle going into my chest unless it's absolutely necessary. And therefore, we have to accept that sometimes these effusions are not sterile. They will be infections and they will be a big deal. No physician is perfect. I think it was the actress Eleanor Braun that said both men and women are fallible. The difference is women know it. But what happens in this situation is the patient ends up back in the hospital after they finish their antibiotics because you didn't completely kill the infection. And frequently, speaking as a chief medical officer, the family members will start saying you kick the patient out of the hospital too quickly and they will want me to discipline the hospitalists that discharge them. So I will try and reason with the family, sometimes successfully, other times you can't really change a person's heart with logic, and therefore these stubborn and unpredictable empyemas can make for some unhappy customers. 
Speaking of treatment and antibiotics, which is something I'll get into more in a later podcast, typically with pneumococcal pneumonia, you're going to treat for about five to seven days, with the exception being bacteremic pneumococcal disease. In that case, you usually want to treat for about 10 to 14 days. And when I say treatment of pneumococcal pneumonia, I shouldn't indicate that you're usually going to know that it's the pneumococcus causing this patient's pneumonia, meaning you could do a urinary assay for pneumococcal cell wall components. We call that a pneumococcal urinary antigen. And I'm not arguing that there's a strong indication for routinely doing a pneumococcal urinary antigen. Sometimes you will want to do it because you have a particular patient that for several reasons you may want to reduce the spectrum of antibiotics. And if you identify the organism, you may not be as broad spectrum in your antibiotic use. Though I must say, when I see people even identify the organism, either by culture or antigens or whatever, they often don't decrease the spectrum of the antibiotics and the de-escalation therapy doesn't happen. But all that aside, it's often very difficult to know what specific organism is causing a pneumonia, and therefore we have a lot more to talk about, as pneumonia is indeed a very broad topic. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Perrott.